0: Welcome to No Filter, everybody. I'm your host, Anna Kasparian. No, I'm not. I'm Brett Ehrlich. And I'm filling in for Anna. If you don't like it, just wait a week. She'll be back next Monday. In the meantime, we have a lot of show to get to. We're gonna talk about some things that I've been thinking about, uh, hopefully with some jokes and funny happiness, but also some real points that'll make you and your parents think. Uh, We're gonna talk about the NRA TV, which unfortunately I did sit down and watch for quite some time. Um, And then we're also gonna start off with talk about this missionary guy. What am I talking about? Well, let's just get into it. By now you've heard the story of the missionary who was killed by members of a remote island, uh, tribe somewhere in the Indian Ocean. And now when I first heard about this story, I asked myself, after all these years, in this day and age, how can a group of people still be so outdated? Out there acting like such savages, causing so much harm in the world. And let me clarify, I'm not asking how can there still be Sentinelese tribesmen, I'm asking how can there still be missionaries? In this segment, we're gonna talk about these globetrotting evangelicals and see if missionary work has evolved at all since the days of smallpox blankets. But first, let's talk about this indigenous tribe and the misguided man who unfortunately followed through on the thoroughly bad idea of approaching a group he knew to be violently confrontational toward outsiders. The Sentinelese are one of over 100 so-called uncontacted tribes in the world. Now most of these live in South America in places like the Amazon, but the Sentinelese themselves are the only uncontacted tribe in the world to have their own island. And anthropologists believe that uh, they've maintained this same Neolithic lifestyle for anywhere between 30,000 and 55,000 years, which I'm told is a very long time. Nearby islands uh, are home to other indigenous tribes known as the Great Andamanese tribes that have had more interaction with colonialists over the years and have fared much worse. Quote, Several epidemics engulfed them syphilis, ophthalmia, measles, mumps, influenza, and gonorrhea, which steadily shrank their population from 3,500 in 1858. And by 1931, it was down to 90, which I'm told is a very small number. To be fair, the Sentinelese have had their run-ins with outsiders over the years. In 1880, officer Maurice Vidal Portman of the British Navy came upon a quote, elderly couple and four children who they, took back to Port Blair, the capital of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. The elderly couple sickened rapidly, because of course they did, and they died. And the children were sent back to the island with gifts, which thankfully didn't kill everyone on North Sentinel Island. Now the island has seen a handful of shipwrecks, one, the Primrose, is actually still visible if you go look for it on Google Maps. Everybody marooned on the island has been attacked. Some were killed, including a pair of fishermen who got drunk, floated to the island, only to be uh, shot with arrows in the head multiple times. So there's something for a hangover. What we do know is that they have lived happily and largely healthily on their tiny, lush, mangrove-swamped 20-square-mile island for at least 30,000 years. During which time, they have feasted on wild pig, clams, berries, and honey, engaged in energetic communal sex sessions on the beach, and repelled pretty much every visitor, well-meaning or threatening, with a flurry of poison arrows and razor-sharp machetes. Couple things stick out to me. First, uh, energetic sex sessions on the beach. These people know how to party. Why are we trying to convert them? It looks like we all could learn a thing or two Or 69. Uh, But I'm gonna read between the flurry of poison arrows here and say that they don't like visitors. And for all party safety, the Indian government eventually passed a law prohibiting visitors from getting too close to the island. And that's the way things were until John Chow showed up. Now, Chow was two things, an adventurer and a missionary. And while his pretty popular Instagram featured captions like, Kayaking the tropics in this endless summer, hashtag off season, hashtag adventure, hashtag perky jerky. His personal journal said things like, Lord, is this island Satan's last stronghold where none have heard or even had the chance to hear your name? Now, I get mad when people I know judge me. Imagine if a strange missionary showed up and called my homeland Satan's stronghold. Though to be fair, I do believe Satan's stronghold and missionary both refer to sex positions. Chow had a long time obsession with the island, so he hired fishermen to take him there. And here was his master plan. Hi, my name is John, I love you and Jesus loves you, he shouted at them. Then he threw a fish at the Sens and fled, end quote. We're off to a great start. The saga continued, he returned the next day with a bevy of gifts, fish, scissors, and a safety pin. When a man wearing a crown shouted at him, he sang worship songs and hymns until the boy shot an arrow that stuck in Chow's waterproof Bible. That's not a foreboding omen. Still, Chow later returned to the island because he said, according to him, he just needed to declare Jesus to them and he was never heard from again. Now, I know how I feel about this. I went to a Catholic school, which eventually did find out that the English teacher who was sleeping with the students actually met that student when she was in middle school. I mean, I don't think he suffered any consequences, and he went on to teach somewhere else. Plus, I also did see The Keepers on Netflix. So with those two things, I'm still a little cynical about organized religion. Also, a LinkedIn profile for that guy says he works at Fresh and Easy, by the way, which I guess is how he likes them. And the only reason I hope there's a hell is so that he burns there. So that's how I feel about organized religion. Of course, that's just me. The real question is, how do current and former actual missionaries feel about John A. Chow? After all, there are 440,000 Christian missionaries going out there doing the good Lord's work in 2018. The New York Times recently asked some of them this very question. One, Mike Wilson had been to missions in Haiti and he said, quote, I believe if someone is truly called by God to do something, they must do it. Jesus broke with the traditions and taboos of his day to touch lepers. Good point there, Mike. Just one thing, if you touch lepers, nothing happens. If you touch the Sentinelese, they all die from a cold. Why would God call upon you truly to do that? Not everyone's like Mike. Uh, Some just go on missions to do nice things. Andrew uh, Millman said, quote, I went through extensive training on cultural competency, post-colonial theory, and faith-rooted organizing. I was not there to, quote, save souls or to convert people, but was instead said to live in solidarity with marginalized communities while working for holistic systemic reform. And honestly, that sounds awesome. This is the healthiest approach I've found. And to be fair, I came across a lot of missionary organizations that follow this model. Go there, do good, build houses, God bless. But one account caught my eye, Amy Peterson, who went to Southeast Asia in the early 2000s. She said, quote, I worked as an English teacher, and as she puts it, an undercover missionary in a country where proselytizing was forbidden. Over the last 15 years, I've thought a lot about whether I did good or evil in sharing the gospel with those women. Missionaries like this are teaching people a new language, they're building a school, but they're also just kind of lying. The Atlantic writes, Christian missionaries nowadays are relatively less inclined to tell others about their faith by handing out a translated Bibles and more likely to show it through their work, often a tangible social project, for example, in the context of a humanitarian crisis. That sounds fine, but here's another person interviewed for the article who says, when I'm abroad, I don't say the word missionary because of the stigma that it carries with other communities. I usually just use the word volunteer or English teacher, so it actually sounds like I'm there with a purpose, and I'm not going to make you believe something you don't wanna believe. But you are. You're misrepresenting your true intentions, and the last time I checked the Ten Commandments, that's bearing false witness against your neighbor. Of course, an approach like this can yield strange consequences. When you're going out being an American evangelist in foreign lands, uh, as I found in this video of an Indian faith healer doing his best impression of a televangelist, using Jesus to help a man's short leg grow to match his long leg.
1: Bone grow, tissues, muscles, ligaments, grow in the name of Jesus. And
0: it's just so amazing to see the Bible channel at work in foreign countries. Now, in my line of work, I try to convince people of stuff all the time, but I try to come at them with facts. I certainly don't target people like the Sentinelese or the countless others already decimated or annihilated through germ warfare or actual warfare. The core of missionary work always sounds good, building schools, teaching a second language, even you know, teaching folks about the fundamental underpinnings of what builds their ethical system through religion. But it's the way that missionary work has been carried out over the years that seems downright evil. That's why there is a stigma around it. The hubris you have to feel to see this tribe not as an absolute miracle, but as a problem to be solved and to see their untainted paradise as hell instead of Eden and to see yourself as the savior, not the serpent there to tempt them through taking a bite from your fish that you've wiped your bacteria all over. Hi, it's me, Brett. I know you have no way of understanding these words that I'm saying right now, but what if I told you that you'll burn in hell for all eternity unless you eschew your carefully guarded 50,000 year old traditions for mine? For God's sake, heathen, replace your savage nudity with something civilized and godly, like this necktie short sleeve dress shirt combo. Now that your primitive days are behind you, why don't you do something civilized like drink the blood of my zombie god, which is wine little boy, but it's okay, you can trust me, I'm wearing a robe. Don't take my word for it, just listen to Kenya's first post-colonial president, Jomo Kenyatta, who said, quote, When the missionaries arrived, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us how to pray with our eyes closed. When we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bible. We'll be right back. Welcome back everybody. Our next story is about the NRA, which has come upon some hard times lately. I mean, yes, they still have millions of dollars a year to spend blocking common sense gun legislation no matter how many people get killed along the way. Relative to previous years, they have less millions to spend. According to The Hill, the NRA reportedly saw a $55 million drop in revenue in 2017 due in part to decreased donations and annual dues. And that's a good thing, right? For the most part, yes, folks are catching on to their treachery. But there is one downside I could never have foreseen and it breaks my heart. The economic downturn is affecting NRA TV. The NRA TV channel was uh, launched in late 2016 and dubs itself the online television platform of the powerful gun rights lobby, including two live news channels and 34 tape shows, all sponsored by gun makers, according to its homepage. And now, facing those tough times, people are getting fired. It's such a shame. So as a show of solidarity, I thought I'd do something nice for the NRA and throw them a view. So yes, I watched some NRA TV in this segment called, So I Watched Some NRA TV. Northwestern University released a training video teaching students how to save their own lives in the event of an active shooter situation. Here it is.
1: If you hear gunshots, don't wait until others tell you to act. If it's safe to run, run. Always note your surroundings and have escape routes in mind, including exit stairwells and emergency exits.
0: The video is intense and absolutely horrifying, and I learned a thing or two from watching it, frankly. And it also makes you think about what a situation like that might look like, so I guess you're a little bit more prepared. The video is titled, Run, Hide, Fight, for the Hierarchy of What to Do Once a Shooting Begins. But one man has a problem with that. That man's name is Chuck Holton. He teaches security training uh, all over the world, and he appears on a show called Relentless because this is the NRA TV channel, so of course they have a show called Relentless. Check out their other shows, which are titled Love at First Shot, Armed and Fabulous, Gun Gurus, and Trust the Hunter in Your Blood. And yes, I did make one of those names up, but isn't it weird that you can't really tell which one I made up? Which one do you think I made up? Here's the thing. I didn't make any of them up actually, those are all real ones. Here is the initial reaction from Chuck Holton to that video you just saw.
1: I think that it is the perfect example of how we treat absolute adults in our society like they're children. Like oh, you're, you're 26 or younger, Oh, you're still a kid. You can't do anything that an adult would do. So I mean, although we wanna teach kindergartners how to put condoms on bananas. We don't wanna teach college students how to properly protect themselves.
0: So we'll get to condoms for kindergartners in a second. Remind me to do that. But if I forget, I don't think it's anyone's loss. Uh, but his coherent point was we're treating college kids like babies instead of teaching them how to protect themselves. So you may be thinking, "Oh, what does he mean about Teaching them like babies. Did Northwestern just come up with this protocol? Did they just blind themselves and throw darts at a wall covered in verbs until they saw run, hide, fight? Nope. Media Matters points out that run, hide, fight is the exact advice of the active shooter, how to respond guide published by the Department of Homeland Security. So this is what the nation's experts have decided is the best thing to do in the event of an emergency. But then maybe he's just got a problem with the DHS because he did have this to say about detention facilities used during the child separation crisis.
1: Again, I visited those facilities. Those facilities, if anything, are too nice. What a sweetheart. Maybe he just has, has
0: high standards for low standards. Working toilets? That's too nice. The light switch at this facility turns on and off. What is this, a Hilton? All I'm saying is let's just release one rabid dog into the facility. Now we're talking. Okay, now baby banana condom. Weird. I'm pretty sure you're just hyperbolizing here. I don't think you actually mean that we're teaching kindergartners how to put condoms on. Just from the choking hazard alone, I don't think it's safe. Um, But it's just so weird to me that we were talking about active shooter situations, and right next door to that in your mind is babies, condoms. Babies with condoms. Can we stop talking about active shooters so I can just bring up how babies put on condoms? But just to be sure that wasn't a thing, do you know what you get when you Google condoms for kindergartners? I don't know, because I couldn't go through with it. Something told me that if I actually Google searched condoms for kindergartners, I'd face a life of very troubling suggested content in my browser. Here's the horrible effect Chuck believes this softening of America has on the military.
1: One of the things that, that they're even seeing problems with in the US military today is that guys are coming into the military that have literally never enforced their physical will on another being in their life. And so they don't have any idea how to do that. They've been taught in, in, in a zero tolerance school for for violence at all. And that's not necessarily bad, except for the fact that This is what you end up with.
0: This is a rambling nonsense statement, but I think what he's trying to say is that because we teach people that they should try not to beat the hell out of each other, if at all possible, it's harder to train soldiers in the army. And he doesn't like that, which essentially he's complaining that people who come in for training haven't been trained yet. Isn't that what training's for? And his solution is to train guys to impose their physical will on people, which I'm sorry, it just sounds super rapey. Here's uh, his pitch for an alternative to run, hide, fight.
1: And that means that right. if you find yourself in a situation like this, and you're a capable male in the, in the American population, then your mindset should not be run, hide, and, and then uh, fight. It should be find, fix, and finish. That is, you find the guy that is hurting other people, you go after him and you take him out. You do whatever you have to do.
0: This is dumb for a number of reasons. First, there is a part of that video called fight and it does tell you a pretty solid plan for what to do.
1: Focus on distracting and immobilizing the shooter. Do not stop attacking until the aggressor is no longer a threat.
0: Once the aggressor has been secured, do not touch any weapons or objects they might have carried. Instead, secure the weapons with nearby objects. Um, hey, give me that trash can. But it teaches that stuff as a last resort, plus find, fix, and finish. That's not strong enough. Don't overthink it. Here is what I think your three words should be. It should be fight, fight, and fight already, you frickin' wussy. Do you love me now, Dad? Am I a big enough man now, Dad? People have done that. Lately, by the way, and it's made the news, but not because they've charged the shooter, immobilized them, and became instant heroes. But because when they were doing that, when they intervened, the police shot them and killed them. Because while a good guy with a gun, I'm sure, might be able to stop a bad guy with a gun, sometimes the cops just shoot the black guy cuz they think he has a gun. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Anna Kasparian, and I really need to rewrite these intros. Uh, These are my favorite things. Uh, First up, in a weird way, uh, my least favorite thing is also my favorite thing, if that makes sense. My least favorite thing this week, um, hopefully you can help me with it, it's the Mississippi state flag. Um, Let me explain. Last Tuesday, Republican Senator Sidney Hyde-Smith won a runoff election against uh, Democratic challenger Mike Espy, and in the run-up to that vote, she made the following news, One she expressed eagerness to attend a public hanging. Two, she joked about making it harder for liberal folks to vote. Three, we saw Facebook photos of her visit to a presidential library where she wears a Confederate uniform, which she calls Mississippi history at its best. And the kicker, the presidential library she visited was the Jefferson Davis Presidential Library. That's right, the library of the president of the Confederate States of America. You remember them. They fought against the United States of America so they could continue enslaving black people. Now, all those things are terrible. But she won. And I wanted the whole time to point out how all that stuff that she did was terrible. And that Mississippi lost a war about it 250 years ago, and the world is better when racists are not in power. But I knew I couldn't do that. Why? Because I'd be making that case in a state whose Capitol building flies the Mississippi state flag, which is essentially a mashup of the two flags of the Confederacy. First, you got the layout of the Confederate States, stars and bars flag with the three stripes separated from a square at the top left for separate things. Then in that top left square is the Confederate battle flag. You know that one from Dukes of Hazard. It's the one that has the big blue starry X in the middle of a red square. If the Mississippi flag were a dish on Top Chef, it would be called Hate Two Ways. How much of a problem could voters have with Cindy Hyde-Smith's nonchalant racism when the very emblem of racism is front and center on their state flag? Do I just have to let go of this one? It's very possible. By the way, here's another little tidbit about Mississippi that I find absolutely ridiculous. To their credit, they tried to open a civil rights museum recently, which the New York Times said would offer an unvarnished account of Mississippi's searing racial history, detailing the state's record number of lynchings, portraying segregation, all the terrible stuff that they had done, and the lost cause of the Confederacy as one display terms it. But when it came time to install the flagpole, they realized that the you know, it might be a little weird to have a Museum of Civil Rights with a flag that symbolizes the direct antithesis of civil rights. So what did they do? Did they change the flag? Put up a plaque or something? No. Quote, the state avoided the choice altogether. They just decided not to build a flagpole outside the museum. Favorite. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to rate this podcast. Bart, Craig, Edwin, Sophie, Ja'Cory, Skip, Mary, Arthur. Thank you so much for everything. And we'll see you next time when Anna's back on No Filter.